Well, thanks, guys. What a beautiful hymn. My robes for his. What a wonderful exchange. Appreciate you leading us uh, this morning in that beautiful song. So if you have your Bibles with you today, open up to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. And so upon returning uh, home from Africa this week, I spent a little extra time with my family reconnecting. So I wanted to preach this message to you out of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And the title of this morning's message is Joyful Suffering. Now, I know you're encouraged already. As soon as you hear that title, you're like, yes, this is the sermon I want to hear because I love to suffer and rejoice. So hopefully that's going to be the goal of maybe what you'll say at the end of the sermon if you take God's word to heart as we're encouraged and challenged this morning from Peter, the apostle, writing, I believe, to the church in Rome. And the whole book of 1 Peter really is about how to experience joy in the midst of our suffering. And so this morning, we're just going to dive into chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Here's what Peter writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to just dive into 1 Peter and kind of a little bit of a change of pace from our study from the Gospel of John and to understand what you meant when you wrote through Peter to suffer well, to suffer uh, with even joy, to rejoice so far as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would enlighten us. This morning, God, we pray that you would encourage us. This morning, God, we pray that you would enable us to worship you and to rejoice even in the midst of our suffering. Help us to listen and to apply these truths with the help of the Holy Spirit for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, there was a sign once that stood on the inside of a junior high classroom, and it read these words, quote, experience is the hardest teacher. It gives the test first and then the lesson, close quote. Well, I don't know if those junior hires knew what they were getting into, but that is such a true statement, isn't it? It's so true that there's a lot of tests in life, especially in junior high. You have the test first, and then you learn the lesson that maybe God wants you to learn. Do you remember junior high? That was a rough time. I remember learning a lot of tests and experiences through junior high, maybe things like this. If you don't study for the exam, you probably won't make a good grade on the test. You got to learn that in junior high. How about just because you're a decent ball player in your neighborhood playing sandlot ball growing up doesn't mean you're going to be a starter on the team for for the junior high, right? It's going to be a tough test to learn. Or how about this one? The pretty girl that you think you like doesn't always like you back. In fact, she hardly ever does, right? You got to learn that as well. That goes for you girls too with those cute boys, all right? There's a lot of lessons that you've got to learn in life. And this truism was likely forgotten by most of the students who frequented that classroom. Now, likewise, many Christians do not realize that we also forget that the experiences of the Christian life, whether difficult or pleasant, are to be followed by understanding the lessons that they intend to teach us. In other words, we go through the test or the trial first, and then oftentimes we learn what God wants us to learn. If you're here this morning and you've been alive for any number of years, you know that life is full of tests and life is full of trials. In fact, we often say, I'm just coming out of one or I'm in the middle of one 
or I'm about to enter into one, right? That's just the way it works in this life. And so when it comes to suffering, we need to understand that sometimes we're going to go through the suffering first. And as we're in that suffering, in the midst of our pain, and in the midst of our trial, that then we begin to look to God. Because here's the truth. So many times we're not looking to God intensely until we're in intense suffering. Would you admit that that's true in your life sometimes? You're just kind of cruising through life, everything's going well, and then all of a sudden the roof uh, caves in, the bottom falls out, and you're in the midst of a trial, and now God's got you and he, right where he wants you, right? That's when he's got your attention. That's when, uh, we, when we reach the end of our rope, that we seem to be more ready to look to God's truth. That's when we go through the fire, that we're all of a sudden interested in what God's word says and how he can grow us and teach us through our suffering to look to him. And so God has a lot to teach us about suffering, though our reaction to suffering may not always be exemplary. Our response to suffering must be rooted in God's word. And so this morning, we're going to see a lot of different uh, scriptures that will help challenge us and encourage us that when we go through trials, we don't have to go through them uh, with such um, anxiety, but rather we can go through them with greater anticipation of the glory of God being revealed to us through that trial. And so that's kind of the heart of the message this morning is I want to give you four responses to suffering so that joy will overflow in your life. Simply want to teach you four ways that you can respond to suffering so that you can be filled with joy and true, truly experience joyful trials. You with me? All right, here's number one. First heading this morning is this. Expect suffering as a part of God's productive providence. So number one, expect suffering in your life. And you're thinking already, oh boy, this is it. This is the good message. I like it. I like it already. Adam's telling me to expect suffering. And yet, isn't that what verse 12 says? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you? I mean, haven't we learned by now that this day, this week, this month, this year, something's going to go wrong? Right? It could be that your car has a flat tire or blows the transmission. It could be that you have a very difficult trial at work. It could be that you're in the midst of a marriage conflict. It could be uh, you know, that you just don't like the weather. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, our air conditioner went out for Lisa and I and our car. Both cars, the AC went out, and we're like, what's up with this? You know, we expect our cars to always produce cold air all the time. And when it does it, we're like, this is shocking, unbelievable. You know, that this is going on, and yet that's just what happens in life. And so I'm thinking that we're learning here that we're being warned ahead of time. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Peter, notice he starts off, verse 12, by saying, Beloved. And so we, we understand that that's a common word used in the Bible, particularly in the book of 1 John, where the author is trying to develop a concern and an appreciation for his audience. It communicates uh, kindness and love, that, that Peter cares for these Christians who are suffering in Rome, and he cares for them in a meaningful way. He knows they're going through a great trial, right? They're going through great difficulty as Nero is now persecuting the church, and many Christians are being dipped in paraffin wax and being lit on fire to light up the night sky as Nero enjoyed these awkward banquets with his guests. I mean, this is a very difficult time in the time of the church, and yet he's telling them, hey, expect it. Expect the fiery trial. It's going to happen in your life. I mean, 1 Peter is a book about persecution. It's a book about trials. It's a book about suffering. But it's also a book about joy. It's a book about in the midst of your trial, find joy. In the midst of your suffering, if you're living for Christ, you can learn to broadcast the glory of God in such a way that you are a vital witness to your community. I mean, when you're, when you're suffering, but you're looking to Christ and you're rejoicing in that trial, your community, whether it's your husband or wife or family or those around you, they see the love of God. They see the faith that you have, the dependence that you have upon God. In the midst of that trial, we, uh, we got to learn to have joy. And that's really what verse 13 gets into, but rejoice and, and that you may also rejoice two times in verse 13. But here in verse 12, we're talking about how Peter, again, is writing to the church in Rome, and he calls them beloved. He loves them. This is the same kind of 
heart that Paul expresses to the church of Thessalonica when he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And so Peter, again, he's going to write some hard things here about rejoicing in trials, but he starts off by just saying, beloved, I love you. I care for you. I want to comfort you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to let you know that first and foremost, you need to know that you are loved by God. That in the midst of your trial, don't forget the fact that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. So in the midst of any trial, you could always go back to the gospel and be like, oh yeah, he loves me. I am beloved, even in the midst of this trial, I belong to God. I'm an adopted child into his family. And so I think Peter's just kind of starting off this text, this unit of scripture, reminding them that they are beloved. And so we understand here that he also says, don't be surprised. How many of you guys like surprise birthday parties? It seems like the guys always are okay with it, and the girls are always like, oh, don't do a surprise birthday party for me, right? But it's coming, all right? some point in your life, someone's going to throw you a surprise party, so expect it. Expect it even now. And that's what he's saying is that throughout life, there's all kind of surprises that come that we need to learn to expect that it's going to happen. And it could be a fiery trial, but it's coming upon us to test us, to test us. And, and then he says, again, don't think of it as though something strange were happening to you, as if, as if this never happens. It does happen. It's part of life. I told you earlier, a couple of weeks ago, I was on my back in the bed for three days, suffering some horrible tropical sickness in Malawi. And it wasn't any fun. I was in in the bed all day Saturday, all day Sunday, all day Monday, and then I went to the hospital to get checked out and see what was going on. I mean, mean, it was like Sunday night of that week, but that was like the night from hell. You know what I'm talking about? You're laying in bed, you're in a cold sweat. You can't hardly get out of bed, and you're just like, Lord, just come right now. I mean, I want to see my wife and kids again, but God, just come right now. I need you, Lord, to come right now because I can't make it through this trial anymore. And that's just what happens in life. And sometimes it's some type of like amoral suffering, like when you get sick, it's not always as a result of sin, though it could be. But a lot of times things happen in life when there's an accident or a tragedy. But there's also different types of suffering that we go through in life. And what he's going to get into here in this text is that kind of suffering that when we suffer for Christ, okay, when we suffer for Christ, that's what we'll be getting into. But first, let me just say this, trials are ordained by God and brought into your life to bring about great things for you. God wants to test you and to strengthen you in the midst of it. And so here's how we'll tackle that. How can uh, trials possibly be for your benefit, you may ask? Well, look at your sub points there. How can trials or suffering be for your benefit? Number one, or A, because God said so. God God loves you so much, he's the one who invents trials. Did you know that? Trials are not invented by Satan. I I remember after 9-11, I was listening to a Christian radio broadcast, and they were talking about how trials and suffering doesn't come from God. It comes from Satan. And I think I know kind of maybe what was meant by that, but if you really think about it, that's just not true. Because of what God says in the Bible, he brings purposefully, brings about trials and suffering in our life. For example, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where you know the story well, Joseph is sold into slavery, goes to Egypt, becomes second in command, and then his brothers, because there's a famine in Israel, come for food, and Joseph sees his brothers again. And here's what he says to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. So he's acknowledging, you guys tried to kill me. You threw me in a pit. You sold me into slavery. What you guys meant was evil. But notice how the verse goes on to say, but God meant it for good. I've always been blown away how that same verb is used, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, God ordained, God brought about this particular suffering in the life of Joseph, not as some punishment of his son, but rather as a productive part of his providence because God had a greater plan. And what was God's plan? According to the rest of the verse, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You ever thought about that? If Joseph was not sold into slavery, it's possible that Israel 
could have been wiped out from the famine. But because he was sold into slavery, and because God transported him to Egypt, because God enabled him to interpret dreams and to become second in the land, he was able to provide bread and grain for his family, which eventually moved to Egypt and lived there for 400 plus years. But this was according to God's plan so that many people could be kept alive as they are today. And so there's a case in point, all suffering's not bad. God says that he means for it to happen. And he's up to something good, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Or if you have your NASB before you, you know it says it this way, God causes all things to work together for good. And you may ask again, well, what's the good? What's the good that can possibly come from my sickness, from my trial, from this heartache, from this, this, this death in the family, this loss of job, this conflict? What good could come from it? Well, that's why we need to remember verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. So what's the good that, that God brings through your trial? He makes you more like Jesus. In the midst of your trial, he says that he's causing something to happen that's good, and that good thing that he's causing to happen in your life is that he wants to make you more like Jesus. He wants to conform you, to change you, and to mold you more into the image of his son. And so why do we have suffering? It's productive, according to the providence of God, because God said so. Your next blank says it this way, because trials flesh out your sin. Trials, or suffering, happens to be one of God's choice instruments to flesh out the sin in our life so God can again conform us into the image of his son. I mean, do you, do you want to remove more sin out of your life? How many of you guys want more sin in your life? Hopefully nobody. How many of you want less sin in your life? You're like, yeah, I'd like to get rid of this. Well, guess what? It may be through trials and suffering that God gets rid of that sin in your life. Consider how it's written in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. As you know this other uh, famous cross-reference. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Whether it's a little bitty trial, I'm sick for the day, or my air conditioner went out, or it's a great big trial, loss of a loved one, terminal illness, loss of job, whatever, various, I love that word because it means anything. From the smallest to the largest, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces, here's God's goal, it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right now, apparently, we're all lacking. And so God keeps lending trials our way so that we can grow in our steadfastness, so that we can be perfected, so that we can be made complete, and so that we no longer have any lack. God desires to remove all self-dependency, all self-reassurance, so that we're completely dependent on God. He wants to build in you, Romans 5, patient endurance. That's what he's doing. Through every trial that comes your way, he's growing you and making you a little bit more like Jesus. So when the trial comes, this shouldn't be one of those sermons where you're like, again, oh no, he's preaching on trials. That means this week I'm going to go through an awful trial. It's going to be a horrible week. If that's your mindset, you don't have a biblical one. The biblical mindset should be like, Lord, I am your humble servant. Whatever it takes in my life to make me love you more. God, whatever you want to do in my life, to make me more like Jesus, I'm here. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. Now, it's not that I'm asking for horrible trials, but God, if that's what you know you need to bring about in my life, I want to humbly accept and learn to rejoice in the midst of it. Because here's the truth. The next subpoint says this, because it is one of many ways that God chooses to bless his children. See, we need a change of perspective. We think trials aren't there to bless us, but they're to hurt us. But that would be an unbiblical, unchristian-like attitude. The Christian-like attitude would be like, wait, wait a second. There's too many verses in the Bible that say, that say that these trials or this persecution is actually not a curse, but a blessing. Consider Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now look, that's coming from the lips of Jesus. And all he's saying is, from the beginning of time, for those who walked with Yahweh, for those who had a relationship with God, they've always been persecuted. So how could we expect any less? Just because we live in the 21st century, just because you live in America, doesn't mean you're not going to face grave persecution when you stand for Christ. And God says, if that happens in your life, you're blessed. You are a blessed individual if you're suffering because you stand with Christ. And so don't view it as something that's strange. View it as something that you expect. We live in a day and a time when when you stand with Christ, you will be persecuted. It could be that you're off on a business trip and everybody else who works for your company on this business trip wants to celebrate after hours. And so they head to the bar or they head to the club and they want to get involved in some ungodly activity. You're the only one who's a professing Christian and you're in a group on a business trip. What are you going to do? Because in the moment you stand for Christ and you say, hey guys, that's all right, you guys go ahead. I'm just going to stay in the room tonight. And you get mocked and you get ridiculed and you get reviled as being a holy roller or somebody who just doesn't know have, have any fun because you're standing with Christ and you're not going to align yourself with evildoers, how do you handle that? Or do you go on the, on the outing? Do you kind of just go out and experience and explore what's happening out in the world? Or it could be that you're just a, maybe you're a stay-home mom. Right? But you're hanging out with, with the homeschool group or the Christian school group or the public school group of, of the moms that, that, are, that are throwing a birthday party or a little uh, play date. And all of a sudden, these moms start talking and they start gossiping and slandering each other and other neighbors and other friends. What, what do you do? Because if you stand for Christ and in that moment say, ladies, we don't need to talk like that. I love Christ too much to allow our conversation to tear down our friend. You try that for one second and a, and a group of unbelieving mothers, and they're going to look at you like, who do you think you are? We will do whatever we want. Why don't you get out of our group? You're no longer invited to our playgroup. You come home with your kids all alone because you have no more playgroup, right? I mean, it's going to happen to you, right, if it hasn't already, right? What, what about you're, you're at a dinner party, and everybody's talking about how ridiculous it is that Christians hold to traditional views of marriage, and they're ridiculing the Christian concept of biblical marriage being between one man and one woman for all time. What do you do at the dinner party? Do you speak up and say, actually, I stand for that truth. I believe God's way is the best way. Or do you just be quiet and, and because you don't want to be what? Persecuted. You don't want to be ridiculed. You don't want to be mocked at because if you're out to dinner with your boss, then you know and you realize, you know, I may not get that promotion if I step up for Christ. I may not get that, that, uh, you know, that nod at the company to do that new project. I may not, they're going to ridicule me if I stand for marriage or stand for sexual identity and gender in a biblical way. I mean, we live in a, a time and place where even doctors could be ridiculed for not performing abortion because no longer is right wrong and wrong right. It's all messed up. And so you and I are going to be facing all kinds of persecution. And God is saying in his word, don't be surprised. It is coming. You have been forewarned through the word of God this morning. It is coming to you, and it's coming to test us. And the good news is, is that in the midst of this suffering, God wants to produce in us godly character, and get this, true joy. That leads us to our second heading, really. Number two is this, exult in suffering with constant joy. This isn't a time to say, oh me, oh my, I wish I lived back in the hippie days. They were no better then. Right? I wish I lived back in the Bible days. It was no better then. I wish I lived back in the Old Testament. It was no better then. It's never been really any better. Always throughout life, you're facing difficulty, but God's teaching us in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so we're seeing here that not only are we supposed to just make it through suffering, just somehow find a way to get through, but we're actually called to rejoice. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you have an immediate emotional response of praise Jesus. I love Jesus. All right. I mean, you may not just have that like that, right? But this is a deep seated, true joy based not on your circumstances or your emotion, but based on your trust in God based in your belief in God, 
based in a future reward of Christ's return. And here's what we're saying is Peter fills this book with the idea of rejoicing and suffering. In fact, turn back to chapter 1. He's already told us this several times. We'll look at chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7, where Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while it is necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So throughout the book he's saying, Rejoice in your suffering, because when you rejoice in your suffering, then you're honoring Christ. Or we could say it this way, the next blank here under number two, A, you share in Christ's suffering when you live like Christ. You share in Christ's suffering when you live like Christ. We need to take careful note of verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Notice verse 13 doesn't say necessarily, in this verse, it doesn't say rejoice in all suffering. No, he's now categorizing a special type of persecution and suffering, and in this verse, he's saying insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. That word insofar could also be translated as to the degree or according to which. It gives us the idea that there is a type of suffering that does not share with Christ's suffering, and there's a type of suffering that does share with Christ's suffering. Now, the, the simple answer to this is all suffering that comes from sin in your life is not sharing the sufferings of Christ because Christ never sinned. So anytime that you're suffering from your own sin, you are not sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And so you have to identify whether or not your suffering is based on sinful things that you've been involved in, or is your suffering because you're linked up with a like-minded walk along with Christ and that you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ because he was perfectly holy. And so we have to understand that when we suffer for Christ, then it just really shows that we've been living for Christ. When you suffer for Christ, it shows you've been living for Christ. And so the idea here, again, is that Jesus says in Luke 6, 22, Luke 6, 22 and 23, he says, blessed are you. When people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. I mean, sometimes you're like, what? Rejoice and leap for joy? Really? Like, I'm going to leap for joy in that day? That's what he says, though. When they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn you, and, and uh, on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So again, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad in that day. And I think the day he's talking about, look at the end of verse 13, again, 1 Peter 4, 13, it says that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when does that joy come into full culmination would be at the second coming, when Christ comes back and his uh, presence is revealed in that moment, your joy will reach the highest height. In the meantime, it's a little bit difficult to get there, but it's because of the hope of that future day when Christ comes back that we can have joy on this day. And so this is the kind of revelation that we long for, the return of Christ, the hope of the return of Christ. And in the meantime, we might be suffering continually, but at least we're called to count it as a joy, and we're told in other parts of Scripture it's a reward. You're building up a greater reward so that when Christ comes back, you're going to have greater joy and greater opportunity to worship your king. Now, not only this, not only do we need to know that, that we're supposed to be sharing in Christ's sufferings, but also the second blank says this, you receive the power of the Spirit when you suffer like Christ. You receive the power of the Spirit when you suffer like Christ. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory... I believe that to be a reference to the Holy Spirit, and of God rests upon you. I believe that what he's saying here is that when you go through immense suffering, you receive the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that rests upon you in that very moment. How is it that when we read about the English Reformation 
and pastor after pastor marches down the road to be burned at the stake for believing in the gospel, how is it that we're told time and time again that many of these men rejoiced? Many of these men quoted the Psalms. Many of these men sang hymns. Many of these men were said of them that it looked like they were going to a wedding instead of going to their death. Now, how is that possible? 288 men and women and children died in the English Reformation in the mid-1500s because of their belief that it was Christ alone that brought salvation. How could they suffer in that way? I believe that that's a fulfillment of this verse that talks about, again, in that moment when they were insulted for the name of Christ, the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rest upon them. Rest assured, believer, what I'm saying to you is that when you go through suffering and you feel like you're up against the wall and you're about to break at the brink of suffering in your life, it's at that moment that you experience supernatural power and the ability to face the persecutor and to love them and forgive them just like Christ did on his way to the cross, just like Stephen did on the day he was martyred. There is a special supernatural intervention in extreme suffering. And it's because of that that we can have great reason to rejoice. Right? We can rejoice knowing that God will take care of us. Have you ever been there? You ever been in such a difficult situation in suffering that in that moment, I'm talking about suffering for Christ, persecution for the gospel, that in that moment, God gave you extra strength, extra energy, extra ability to stand with Christ in the midst of it. I remember one occasion back when I was in PA school that I had shared the gospel with a patient in a mental health hospital. Somehow, the chief uh, doctor of the hospital found out about it. And he got real upset about it because the guy I shared with started telling everybody gospel things. And so the guy calls me into his office and he says, what have you been doing? And I said, I've been here trying to help these guys uh, with the love of Christ. And he's like, you can't share Christ in this hospital. I'm having you written up. I'm calling your school and recommending your expulsion for what you did. And I'm like, sir, I'm just trying to help. These guys need help and the medication you're giving them, it's not working. I'm saying it's not working, but we could share Christ and the love of Christ with them. And I talked with him for a moment to no avail. He just basically said, look, if I hear you sharing the gospel one more time, kicking you out of here. So, you know, what did I do? I decided to abide by that rule because I knew I'd only be there for a few more weeks and I'd be gone anyway because it was just a rotation. But if that had been my job, I might have just had to walk out and just say, hey, man, I can't work here and not be a light for Christ. I mean, you're going to be facing opportunities at work. I'm not saying you should always be evangelizing on the clock, right? Because sometimes that, that may be an issue and you need to be uh, mindful of your time. But the point is just simply this, that when you're in that heat of the battle, I just remember in that moment, you know, you're like, well, I don't, how did you feel when he was like, you know, chastising you and threatening you? I just felt a peace of God come upon me. Be like, hey man, if I lose my schooling, I lose my schooling. I'm here for Christ. I'm not here for you. You know, God, God will provide the strength, I believe, in that moment to give you the ability because of the power of the Holy Spirit and of God which rests on you in that very moment. And so it's interesting uh, is that what should depress us and make us sad could actually be something that makes you glad when you have a, a spiritual perspective. I mean, what's the alternative anyway? What's the alternative to the persecution? It's you could be persecuted and judged by God. If you, chan, if you choose not to stand with God, you give in to the ways of the world, you're going to have it coming to you on the other end from God as the discipline of our Lord. And so you can either be persecuted, if you will, by the world for standing for Christ, or you can be persecuted or disciplined by God at the end of your life if you deny Christ. And so I'm suggesting here that we learn to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's suffering. And then in verse 14 again, we understand that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Well, let's move on, if we can, to that third way to respond in the midst of suffering. Number three, evaluate suffering to make sure it's not your fault. And I've already mentioned this a little bit, but if you're that annoying Christian who's always going around talking about Christian things and not being tactful and mindful of the time and the place, then it could be that you're being persecuted just because you're annoying or nobody likes you or you just don't fit in or you have a bad 
personal way of approaching people. And so evaluate the suffering to make sure it's not your own fault. It's what we're learning here from verses 15 through 18. In the first blank, I want to say this. There are those sins that are mentioned in verse 15 which are against God's law and man's law. In other words, he's saying some suffering becomes, uh, comes on you because you break the law, which is why he says in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Let me just stop with those three, okay? So he's saying if, if you suffer because you're a murderer, that's on you. If you suffer because you're a thief, that's on you. If you suffer because you're an evildoer, which is another word for a criminal, that's on you because you're getting what's coming to you. But the next blank says those, those sins which are against God's law only. So there are some sins which are against God's law, but not man's law. Like we could, in this example, it's the word meddling. Right? The, word, the idea of meddling, meddling in other people's affairs. In other words, being a gossip. If you're a gossip, that's not illegal, not against the law to gossip, to be a meddler, but it's against God's law. And if you get involved in gossip, it will come back to bite you because there's consequences for your sin. And so what we're really saying here is that whether you're sinning against those things which would be against God's law and man's law, or just those things which are against God's law, if there's any sin in your life, then the suffering that you're facing is a part of your own fault. And so Peter is challenging us, hey, evaluate where the suffering's come, coming from, because if it's coming from your sin, whether it's against the law or just against God's law, maybe a better example of that would be sexual immorality, right? It's not illegal to commit sexual immorality, but it's against God's law. And so if you're involved in that activity, part uh, from, from God honoring marriage, then God's law says that you're going to suffer consequences, right? Doesn't mean we can't be forgiven. Doesn't mean that God's grace isn't there. Doesn't mean there's not mercy to cover our sin and to wash us and to make us white as snow. But at the same time, there is suffering that comes along with sin. That's what verse 15 is about. But let's move on to verse 16. And your next blank says this, there is no shame in suffering as a Christian. So if you're suffering as a sinner, that is shameful. That's on you. That's verse 15. But if you're suffering as a Christian, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so here we see that if you're suffering because you stand with Christ, that's not shameful. That's a blessing. This is what we read about in the book of Daniel, when you realize there were some evil officials who wanted to kind of catch Daniel. Remember that story? But then they said they couldn't find anything to catch him on to convict him of because they were trying to get rid of him. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Makes sense? They realize we're never going to catch this guy breaking the law unless we make a law that makes him break God's law, and then we've got him, and we'll be able to throw him in the lion's den, which is exactly what happened. But you know what? There's no shame in being thrown in the lion's den just because you pray to your God. There's no shame for being thrown in jail just because you stand for the gospel. There's no shame in the suffering that you face if you face that suffering as a Christian living for Christ in the name of Christ. And yet we live in a day where the, the, the word Christian is becoming a derogatory term. You understand, that's how it started. At first, the, the term Christians, given first to the Christians at Antioch, remember in Acts, it was given as little Christians. And it was kind of a way that those who were persecuting the early church would make, well, you Christians. And then for a season, after the Judeo-Christian era of Rome all the way up to the present, it's almost like we've entered into this idea of like, well, actually being a Christian is a good thing. If you're a Christian, that's, that's a good thing. You love people, you forgive your enemy, you provide medical care, food and shelter, and uh, you know, you're, 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 the, you're in the right, so to speak. Until here in the last decade or so, right? It's starting to slip more and more into where, at least in our country, being a that's not a good thing. Being a Christian? Are you kidding me? We're being mocked and ridiculed and told that what we're doing and standing for, which is right, whether it be marriage or purity, or humility, or not stealing at work, right? Just abiding. I mean, how many times is your boss maybe going to come up to you and say, we're going to do it this way? And you're like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do it that way. You know, the, the idea is that we're learning that being a Christian is no longer a, uh, something that our culture praises, right? It's something that our culture is going to be persecuting more and more and more. And what I'm saying to you is, don't be ashamed. 
You have no fear. You have no shame as long as you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what David wrote in Psalm 40. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet on a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Church, beloved, be encouraged that we're going to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. That we're going to trust him even if we get ridiculed by the world. We have no shame if we're living for the gospel and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this moves us to our fourth, fourth sub-point here. D, there is a type of judgment on the household of God. And basically what we're reading in verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know what he's saying? Trials and suffering kind of winnow out in the church, those who stand with Christ and those who don't. It's through trials and suffering for standing what's right that shows your true colors. And if you stand with Christ, it may feel like you're going through a time of judgment. This word judgment in this context does not mean condemnation, but rather this word judgment in this context means purging and cleansing. And that's what God's into doing, and it starts with the church of God. I believe ever since the sexual revolution has begun of treating homosexuality as completely normal and okay, I believe you're starting to tell where churches really stand. God has used this issue at our time more than any other to show the churches that stand on the truth of God's word and those who go against it. Every church that adopts any sin as normal and as okay is going against the Word of God. Now, the Word of God also tells us there's a way to relate to sinners by forgiving them, counseling them, helping them to live in the light of the gospel. So it's not that we're hating those who have a different persuasion. We want to love them. We want to reach out to them. We want to invite them in so that they can see the true joy of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I am saying is that it's becoming to be, become a dividing line between those who stand on the truth and those who stand in error. And so there's a season. The American church, I believe, is going through a season of judgment or a judicial process that's rendering a decision, a case in point, whether or not that church stands on the truth of God's word and they're being purified or whether or not they're giving in and following the world's way. And then when we move into the fifth subpoint here, E, we read, there is a type of judgment on the ungodly sinner. There's a type of judgment on the believer, but there's also a type of judgment on the ungodly sinner, verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, if it feels like you and I are barely making it through as those who stand with Christ, then what's going to happen to the ungodly man? And it's insinuated that he's going to burn. The Christian is going to actually be saved through the trial in one way or another, but the ungodly man is going to face the full brunt of the wrath of God, which will be worse than any human persecution could ever bring. And so we have to be living this day in light of that final day. The reason we rejoice is because Christ is coming back. We believe in his return. And because we believe in his return, we live every day in light of the fact that we will give an account that we stand for him, that we find joy not in our money, not in our health, not in our popularity, but in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're being called to, is that you can either be judged by God and make it through by his mercy, or you can be one of the ungodly and the sinner, and you're not going to make it through. And this leads us to our last point, if we can, uh, number four. We need to entrust suffering to God, who is a faithful creator. And trust suffering to God, who is a faithful creator. Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, notice a couple things here in verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will. Okay, so I believe what this is saying is if you're walking in accordance with Scripture and you're walking in accordance with God's will, that when you suffer, you can fully entrust your soul to God because he is faithful. 
And he is the creator, which means he has power over all things. And when you're doing good and identifying with Christ and you suffer, you will be blessed even in the midst of that because God is sovereign. He does ordain all things. And we need to trust that God will bring us about, bring about suffering in our life for his good. Now, let me just end this point four with these three subpoints, which I believe is the whole point of the sermon. You ready? So don't, don't, don't knock out on me here. We've got just a couple more minutes, but this is, this is worth the whole sermon, okay? Number A, God may deliver you from the fire. What I want to talk about here is we need to trust God because there are three ways that he may choose to deliver us. We're going through suffering. It's going to happen. Expect it. There's three ways he may deliver us. Number one or A, God may deliver you from the fire. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but there's references there in 2 Kings are talking about when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes to Israel and he's going to wipe out Hezekiah and all the Israelites. And he sends a real nasty letter saying, I'm going to kill you all. You don't have a chance. Don't even trust in your God. And in that moment, Hezekiah says, no, we're going to commit this to prayer. And he takes that letter and he opens it up and lays it down and falls on his face before God and begins to implore God to deliver them from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And what happened? Well, on that night, it says, and that night, 2 Kings 19.35, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Remember that? Just God, Hezekiah desperately asked God for deliverance. God heard his prayer, and God chose to deliver him and Israel at this point from the fire. God wiped out 185,000 Assyrians, and Sennacherib <laughs> departed. Okay, so sometimes God may choose to miraculously save you from the fire, but sometimes he will choose to deliver you through the fire. And that's the second blank. God may deliver you through the fire. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were brought before King Darius or King Nebuchadnezzar, rather, when they were brought before him and told at the sound of all these musical instruments, bow down and worship me. And they, and they said, hey, we, we're not going to do it. We know God's able to save us from you, but even if he does not, we still won't bow down. Remember that in Daniel 3? Well, what happened is they went through the fire. They said, all right, that's it. Heat up the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated before. They grabbed some guards. They grabbed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They took them down to the fiery furnace, and into the furnace they went. Now, it was while they were in the furnace that all of a sudden a fourth person shows up with an, with an appearance like the Son of Man. We believe it to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. When they come out of the fire, the Bible tells us their hair was not singed, their garments didn't smell like smoke, and they had not been harmed at all. But they still went through the what? Through the fire. They were in the midst of that fire, and God still delivered them. Now, it could be, again, that God chooses to deliver you from the fire. You never go through it. It could be that God chooses to deliver you through the fire. You go through the fire. Or number three, it could be that God may deliver you to the fire. He may deliver you to the fire. And on that one, I'm talking about, again, Stephen, the martyr, who went through being stoned to death for preaching the gospel, God did not save him from that stoning, right? He was stoned. God did not deliver him from death. He died. I mean, he delivered Paul a couple of times. Remember, he, he, he would get back up and go right back in and keep preaching the gospel. Didn't happen to Stephen. He died. So why is it that sometimes God chooses to deliver us from the fire? Sometimes God chooses to deliver you through the fire. And sometimes God chooses to deliver you to the fire. In other words, it could end in your death. It could be your last day. He does not guarantee to save every martyr. Instead, many martyrs, obviously the term martyr, are going to die. But you know what? It's through your death that you're delivered. Because when you die, it doesn't get worse. It gets better. And the problem is in our Christian life, we're trying to avoid all three of these. We're like, we're like hey, give me number one. I'll take number one. Deliver me from the fire. And then we get stuck in the fire. And we're like, all right, Lord, get me out of the fire. Don't let this end in death. And then we get to death, and it's like we finally die, and then we're like, oh, this is much better. Oh, I'm in heaven now. <laughs> so the, don't fight it is what I'm saying. I'm saying just like trust God in every part of it, whether you're just like, all right, Lord, we're praying you prevent it. Lord, get us through it. Lord, if you're taking me home, I'm yours because I belong to God. He saved me by his grace. And by the way, if he did not spare the life of his own son, what makes you think he's going to spare you? 
Why are we asking for less suffering than Christ? Christ suffered to the point of death and he died. You and I are like, Lord, don't do it to me. Not to me. Don't, don't expect less than what God gave his own son. And that's what Peter says again when he says, for to this you've been called, 1 Peter 2.21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And so we must lead the results up to God who is a faithful creator. We must trust him and understand that statement at the beginning of the sermon. Experience is the hardest teacher. It gives the test first and then the lesson. I wonder how you're going to do this week as all of a sudden you get hit with suffering, either in a small way or in a major way. When it comes, what lessons will you be learning this week? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions that can help you prepare for that and think about it here on the take-home part of our notes. Are you learning? Are you learning to rejoice as you see suffering as a part of God's plan for your life. My biggest plea to you this morning might be just simply this. When you see suffering coming, please don't say, oh me, oh no, this is horrible, no. I just don't, I don't, I think that's a natural response, but it's not a supernatural response. And what we're trying to learn from these scriptures, they're giving you many cross-references, is like, ah, here comes suffering, opportunity for growth. God, help me to rejoice. Help me to bear up under this trial. God, what are you doing? How do you want to grow me to be more like Christ? What is it, God, that you're doing? I want to learn to rejoice in the midst of suffering in my life. Number two, you've got to be honest here. Is most of the suffering in your life due to your own sin or because you're living for Christ? I want you to ask an honest question of yourself and think about it this week. Is most of the suffering in your life due to your own sin or is it due to the fact that you're living for the glory of Christ. I think if many of us answered that question honestly, we'd be pretty convicted and challenged about maybe where our suffering's coming from. Number three, do you trust God that he is bringing out the best result for his glory and for your good? And that would be the idea, again, if I'm, am I being delivered from the fire, through the fire, or to the fire? Do I trust God knows what's best for his glory and for my good? I hope this text of scripture will help you truly learn to find joy in the midst of your suffering. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. God, we, we just it confess it's not easy uh, to talk about these things, or maybe it is easy to talk about it, but it's not easy to live it out. So would you help us, God, this morning? I'm just praying for us as a church that, that you would help us to see what your word says about the beauty and the joy and the benefit of suffering. And as we face that throughout our life, whether it be a little bit or a lot, I pray that you would return us again and again and again to 1 Peter, to James 1, to Romans 5, to so many passages, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, all of these texts tell us the same thing. Rejoice in the midst of your suffering. God, would you help us to do what we can't do? Thank you for the promise that we've seen today in your word, that it is the Spirit that rests upon us, the spirit of glory and the spirit of God that rests on us so that in that moment we can get through what we think is impossible when we look to Christ and help us to, to anticipate the return of Christ on that final day when his glory is revealed and we see him face to face, then we'll know for sure it's all been worth it, standing for Christ, being a light for Jesus and being willing to face the persecution that's coming our way. Prepare us, God. Help us to trust you with our future, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.